Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Um, I've definitely seen like a massive and bright streak of innovation in your output. Is that ever like oppressive? Is that ever scary? No, not at all. Hmm. It's not oppressive. Oppressive shouldn't be allowed into the process. Why is that? Because who wants to be oppressed? Uh, oppressive is only if you believe that you have to achieve something and that there's a penalty for not achieving it. Hmm. The more you can remove your ego, the more your curiosity will lead you to a place. And if that place, uh, if you find that place to be rewarding, well, great. You know, that's a gift. If not, well, not every voyage ends up as like, that was the best trip I ever took. We've spent many, many dinners talking about classical music, and I really do think he believes that classical music and composers today are making some of the most interesting music. So the fact that he's drawn to it in the same way he was drawn to African music or jazz music or Brazilian music isn't surprising. And it's sort of just sort of classic Paul Simon. One of the things that I love about Paul Simon is that he's a curious mind, that he's sort of like this chameleon that is always reinventing himself and uh, very curious about things around him. If he hears a new sound or a new musical texture or a new musical influence that he feels like he can soak up and use to inspire him to write a new song, he takes that opportunity like no one I've ever been around. So he's always trying to to recreate his sonic universe, and uh, he is uh, always thinking of ways of not sounding like Paul Simon. This experimentation with mixing the different sounds is where all the pleasure comes from. The palette has been expanded. Anyway, it's just a way of thinking about sound and just how flexible the ear is and how much space there is for composers and players to keep making music that is evolving. elderly folks who are looking unamused. Somebody named Danny Brown is playing, and I don't know who Danny Brown is. Okay. And so you're not here for Danny Brown. Who are you here for? I'm here to see Paul Simon uh, with, uh, is it Y Music or E Music? How do you uh, pronounce it? Y Music is a wonderful young ensemble, and and that Paul uh, is Paul. Like, I don't know what he's going to do with Y Music and how they've recomposed some of the songs. It's a crazy scene. It's a little bit cloudy. We're anticipating a storm. It's super cool clouds, but... Uh, 
usually behind super cool clouds is pretty bad stuff. I mean, you know, I've been listening to Paul Simon since I was a kid. We sang Sound of Silence in choir uh, in, like, middle school. And uh, then... I was flipping through my dad's iPod one day after school because he was at work and he had left it, and I found Simon and Garfunkel, and I had heard a few songs before, so I just popped it in and listened to uh, Mrs. Robinson, which is probably my favorite Simon and Garfunkel song, and whenever I first heard that, it really caught my attention. Paul Simon has always been attracted to new kinds of sounds. And I think his unique, like, genius, or one slice of it anyway, is the phenomenal way he combines new ideas with his own creative voice. His most recent collaborative project is actually how I came to meet Paul when he worked with my group Y Music, which is a contemporary classical sextet, last month at the Eau Claire Music Festival in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. But Paul's hunger for new sounds is not new. He's been up to this kind of thing for his entire career, for over 60 years. And that, plus the fact that he's still curious, still hungry all these years later and after all of his successes, well, that's what I want to dig into today. Hello, everybody. How are you all? This is yours truly, Alan Free. Get your dancing shoes on and welcome to the rock and roll dance party. I didn't have much interest in music till I was about 12 or 13. AM radio was playing music. Alan Freed's show played uh, rhythm and blues and doo-wop and the beginnings of rockabilly. That's really when I started to listen. The music that you hear from like around the age of 11 to 14 or 15, it has a, a peculiar power. We absorb and we take it in and it stays with us for our whole lives. That's the music that we love. My father was a musician. He was a bass player and also a band leader. I was given a guitar, and my father taught me the chords that most of the 50 songs were written around, one, six, four, five, and I began to write songs. Art Garfunkel lived a few blocks away. He had a little tape recorder, and we could put down our ideas on the tape recorder, and that's how it all began, pretty close to when we first started listening. How long did it take you to sort of start playing around with alterations in this very sort of basic chord structure? Oh, a long time. I, I didn't get to be a serious, you know, a, a songwriter who was doing more than imitating until I was around 20. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again because So this is the part of Paul's story you probably know. He's in Simon and Garfunkel. They have three number one hits and all of them are pretty epic. Mrs. Robinson, The Sounds of Silence, and Bridge Over Troubled Water and they helped to sonically define a generation. These two young men have attracted a tremendous following among the youth of America with their lyrical interpretation of the world we live in. Two young big talents, both as composers and performers. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon and Garfunkel. So the duo splits up in 1970, and Paul goes solo, releasing three super successful albums over five years. Singer, composer of some of the most beautiful, successful music of recent years, formerly of Simon and Garfunkel, now of Simon, Paul Simon. I met my old lover on the street last night. She seems so glad And then Paul chills out his pace a little bit. Although he's still honestly pretty prolific by any mortal standards. He releases a couple of albums, acts in some films, including the Woody Allen movie Annie Hall. Uh, not a big deal. It's just relax. Just be very mellow. Because I, I don't respond well to mellow. You know, I mean, I have a tendency to. If I get too mellow, I, I ripen and then rot. 
So if it had ended here, Paul Simon would have had an entire arc of a career and a pretty fantastic one at that. But Paul was finding himself kind of stumbling for maybe the first time in his life, or at least he was writing music that wasn't really resonating with his audience the way it used to. His record Hearts and Bones peaked at 35th on the charts in the U.S. Something just wasn't clicking. Then he heard some amazing music. Um, I heard a, a tape of a group called the Boyoyo Boys who were playing Township Jive from Soweto. Well, I didn't know what it was, but it sounded really like uh, early 50s rock and roll. And the South African music sounded familiar to me. And uh, I, I became interested in hearing what other music there was. So that's really uh, how it began. So Paul goes to South Africa. He assembles a group of South African musicians, including the Boyoyo Boys and Ladysmith Black Mombazo, and puts together a recording session at a local studio. And it's there that they lay down the foundation for his next record, Graceland. Paul has to reinvent his creative process on the spot. Instead of coming to the studio with a finished song and handing it over to the musicians, he's working the other way around, laying down tracks of the South African musicians, improvising over top of them, trading ideas back and forth until a song emerges, synthesizing their unique sound with his own. I didn't know what we would get out of that session, but I knew that we would we would have a shot. So on a musical level, it was just, it was an adventure. I did as much homework as I could before I went. And then the rest was really uh, studio technique. It's true there was a big cultural gap that I don't normally have to put into my thinking, but that could be overcome, I suspected, and I, I, I was right. Paul Simon's Graceland is a big success, with more than a million copies sold. The Paul Simon album is number one in South Africa, number six in America. In promoting his album, Simon has brought Lady Smith and Ray Peary to American television, where the message is the same as in South Africa, that black South Africans are more than just victims. So this was the mid-1980s, the height of apartheid. There is so much despair coming out of South Africa, so many haunting images of death and oppression. Sometimes hard to remember that life there does go on in all of its forms. The celebration of the black life of South Africa can be heard in this country in a remarkable album called Graceland, organized by singer Paul Simon. If the power of the music is real enough and touches people, the message is there. It's kind of hard to overstate how much, as a kid born in the early 80s, Graceland was just a part of the cultural fabric of my childhood. Its influence was everywhere, even on Sesame Street. But Graceland was actually a pretty controversial record. Simon recorded the album in South Africa with black musicians, and critics say he should have had nothing to do with a racist country. The United Nations Committee that enforces the cultural boycott against South Africa blacklisted Simon, asking member countries to boycott his music. You know, let's face it, the cultural boycott, it's aimed at cutting off nourishment to the white South African community. And they never addressed the subject of what would happen if somebody went to work with the black artistic community. I went there because I really genuinely loved this music. And because of my love of the music, I came to know these musicians, and they became my friends, and my love extends to the people. I think that is the essence of what, what it is to be against apartheid, is to say, I don't believe in, in any in differentiating between people based on race. Graceland would go on to achieve massive critical success, even winning the Grammy for Album of the Year. I've been, I've been thinking about this for a couple of days. At this point in your life, it must be very gratifying to you, after you've been doing it for 20-some years, 
to at this stage be able to, you know, find that magic again. That must have been very exciting. Uh, well, it's not like finding magic again. It's just doing. Uh, it's. Just I do my work yeah. because I'm interested in my work. Right. So uh, it was. It wasn't an exceptional experience in that. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed it, and and also it was recognized uh, on a popular and critical level. Yeah, yeah that that feels yeah. that feels good. When, as a creative person, you're put in a situation where you feel confused, reoriented, like a kind of a beginner again, you can either freak out or adapt. Paul found that he thrived in this environment. And really, over and over again, he has sought out that challenge. His next album, Rhythm of the Saints, would push him even farther. When I finished that album, I was having a conversation with Eddie Palmieri and Dizzy Gillespie. Not to name drop, but what Eddie Palmieri said was, well, you can't just do one African album. I mean, you know, South Africa has the great singers, but you're going to have to go to West Africa and go and get the drumming. That drumming is going to lead you out into the Africa diaspora, and it's going to end up at its apotheosis in Matanzas province in Cuba. I said, well, that sounds like an interesting adventure. And I began to listen to uh, West African music which uses different time signatures, a lot of six, some nine. And, uh, and then, because I was friends with Milton Nascimento, I went to Brazil. And Brazil is one of the great musical cultures of the Western Hemisphere because it's also using European harmonic information and combining it with West African rhythms, and I began to work with these other time signatures. I have a particular love for six. But there's so many variations on it. I was just in heaven. The Rhythm of the Saints, I had much less control over what I was doing. There was a lot of information that was new information to me. And I was really taking the simplest solutions to problems that had many, 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 many solutions. We believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently, through sound. With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Find us online at q2music.org. got a huge stage, everything's covered in rain, everyone's wearing different colored ponchos, but it's a huge crowd. We're anticipating a storm, Paul Simon's been up to 7.30, so we're just taking it in, we're getting a good spot early. Very large storm pass through. But I mean, there's a good scene, there's a good crowd here. It looks like the crew's rushing to get some tarps over the lights. There's a storm coming, so yeah. There is this um, weird trajectory from utter fragility and simplicity to this almost 
anthem-like big statements that are multicultural and highly political. His music has always sort of gone to what he finds most interesting. He's sort of like this chameleon that is always reinventing himself. He seems just insatiable and omnivorous. From his earliest band, Tom and Jerry, with Art Garfunkel. Like the, the, the very first album. Simon and Garfunkel. This was, very folky place. You know, very folky, but like... Sincerity and within simplicity. Through his jazzier-influenced sort of songs with Still Crazy After All These Years. And now I'm a citizen of the world, and you see music from other cultures. He's obviously really deep into... You know, elements of African music. West African music. Brazilian music. Love Sondheim. Brian Eno. He's so Catholic in his musical tastes. So he's always trying to recreate his sonic universe, and uh, he is thinking of ways of not sounding like Paul Simon. His curiosity about the different types of music being made in the world and how he can use them for his own songwriting and his own music is incredible. And, like, think about all of the music people have been exposed to through a Paul Simon song. Hi, I'm Gabriel Cahane. My name is Marcos Balter. And I'm a songwriter and composer. And I am a composer. My name is CJ Camareri. I'm a trumpet player and a French horn player. I play in both Paul Simon's band and Y Music. In my very first meeting with Paul, when we were to talk about me joining the band, at the end of the meeting, I gave him Balance Problems, our second record. And just said, hey, this is a record with my group Y Music. I'm curious to see what you think of it. And as he said, he listened to it three times, back to back to back. And he came up to me at the beginning of the next day's rehearsal and said, all right, I have some thoughts. And I was like, uh-oh. He said, I love the compositions. The playing is superb. The sounds are incredible. Period. Feel free to ignore what I'm going to tell you next. And then he had a laundry list of ideas. And I was like, oh, my God, these are incredible. And he said, let me know when you're playing in New York next. A couple of years went by and we were doing a collaboration of a new Marcos Balter piece with the dancer Bill T. Jones. And so we invited Paul to the concert. It was his first time seeing the group. And he came backstage afterwards and said, we've got to find something to do together. So... I basically thought of the two things why music does. We collaborate with songwriters and bands, and we commission new works by the leading living composers of our generation. So we enlisted 10 composers to arrange 10 songs. So I was finishing a violin concerto, and I was amidst the usual craziness of trying to finish a piece that big on time, and I was being horrible about checking my email. And uh, one day I saw I get a call from CJ an email by CJ. At, uh, it didn't say anything on the subject, if I remember right. And when I opened, he, you know, like in a two-line, three-line, very casual email. He explains that Y Music and Paul Simon are commissioning these new arrangements. He asked me if I wanted to be interested. jump in and do a an arrangement of a Paul Simon song. I said that I was interested. Freaked out. And um, within five seconds, I said yes. <laughs> To me, it totally makes sense that Paul would be attracted to working with these composers. He loves using his music as a creative foil to other work he finds intriguing. And in fact, this isn't even the first time he's worked with elements from contemporary classical music. A few years ago, Paul became intrigued by this really nutty 20th century composer called Harry Parch. He was using Harry Parch instruments. He used Parch instruments. For his last record. Awesome. I did add his instruments. Which is totally wild. <laughs> Harry Parch was a guy who traveled on trains as a hobo and built his own instruments that looked like surrealist fever dream instruments, tuned in alien scales that he made up himself, scales that had as many as 43 tones to the octave. Like he has a chromalodeon. The chromalodeon looked like a regular harmonium, but the whole keyboard spanned just over one octave. 
There was an ancient Greek instrument built of specifications gleaned from 2,000-year-old pottery. We had other instruments too, a big marimba. Four massive sub-bass marimba notes the size of picnic tables and accessible by a set of stairs. My marimba eroica. And then there were the cloud bowls. Used in so-called cloud chamber experiments. The ear is capable of, of understanding quite a lot. I love it when you can crack open um, access to a new way of hearing and a new way of understanding. Of course. Uh, when I began to write the, uh, the song Insomniac's Lullaby on the last album, I thought those instruments might work very well with this. You don't have to feel that you're locked into some kind of mu musical prison. No, there are escapes that we hadn't thought of. I mean, the brilliance of Parch th realizing this in the early 20th century is, well, it's just genius. It's just genius. Soft as a rose, the light from the east, as if all is forgiven and wolves become sheep. The parch thinking, it really applied to, to the voice in a way that I hadn't at first thought because I encountered his music through the instruments. Our singing is more uh, related to the way we speak. It doesn't just jump across the staff the way it's notated. It's really always moving through notes and so... so you're the, saying we're singing, we sing microtonally anyway. Right. And how it moves through the notes, it has a big effect on how pleasant it is. Hmm. I had a conversation, a really interesting conversation, with Renee Fleming once. And she said, when I'm coming to a passage that's going to take me up into the upper register, I'll approach it from sharp. Which I, I thought was, you know, extraordinary that... Because really, if you said to me, sing that note a little bit sharp, I couldn't. But great singers can, can control whether you're in the sharp part of the note or the flat part of the note. And it has a big effect upon uh, the musicality in one way or another. There was one day I was looking at the, the computer and I said... When I did this take, I would have said, that take is completely in tune. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a typical kind of just at the flat side of the note. And then, like out of frustration, I said, you know what? Put a Yo-Yo Ma piece up. Let's just see where Yo-Yo Ma is playing in this. And he was playing at the bottom of the note, too. I, I told this, you know, little story to Renee. She said, oh, that's so interesting. He must have wanted to darken the tone. So, again, if you take your note and you darken the tone, it's going to have an effect on us emotionally. Very subtle. When we approach these things that are, at first, way beyond our understanding. I see. How does that change what you see your role as, or how does that affect the, the kind of writing that you're doing? I don't, see, I don't see my role. I don't think that way. What is my role? Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm an artist, and I follow, I go one step at a time along a path, I don't know the I don't know the final destination. I don't even know if it just sort of stops. I always say the ear goes to the irritant. 
Hmm. It takes a while before you finally say, I can't stand that section. I can't stand that phrase. You know, first you say, that's good, that's good, that's not, that's not so great, da-da-da, and eventually you can't hear anything but the part that's not so great, and you have to figure out what's not so great about it and what it is that you don't like. And with that, you're going to actually get a piece of information that's uh, like going to class. You're, you're going to get a piece of information. That's gross. It, yeah, that's an, uh, that's an element of it. Um, I once had this conversation. I was working with Brian Eno on an album. Somewhere in the afternoon, I was doing this guitar part again and again, and he, I could see he was just really restless. So I said, well, what's up? You look like you're... You're not like very happy at the moment. He said, "I can't stand that." You know, like I said, "Well, you know, go take a walk, have a cup of tea. You don't have to stay." And then later that night, we were having dinner, and I said, "So, do you think I'm compulsive about this?" And he said, "Definitely." And I said, well, I, "I completely agree with you, but it's an indulgence, if I even want to call it that. That I allow myself. It's that's what I want to do." I don't think I'm wasting my time. It's like what I said, the ear goes to the irritant. I'm really not enjoying what I'm hearing. And it's not like I want it to be perfect. I mean, one of the things that's been said about me through the years is that I'm a perfectionist, but it's such a, it's completely wrong. There's no perfect. I'm not going for perfect. I'm simply eliminating what is annoying. If I replaced it with something that I loved dearly, it would be great. But if I replaced it with something that was adequate, that would be fine and I would move on. So when CJ asked me to do this project, he came with a song that the members of Y Music chose for me, and it was Kathy's song. And I was beyond happy because that's one of my very favorite Paul Simon songs. I hear the drizzle of the rain. So some of the songs that were chosen for the Eau Claire project with Y Music were favorites, real classics from all throughout Paul's catalog. But others were kind of misfits. Songs that Paul felt like the songwriting was great, but the production on the record didn't quite live up to that, um, to the song. This particular song, Train in the Distance, which was a song that I was not familiar with from Hearts and Bones, CJ said something to the effect of, Paul loves this song, but thinks that the album version is terrible, <laughs> or something along those lines. And... Um, And then weeks later, I discovered that there was a demo that's just Paul and his guitar that suddenly transforms the song in, into something that, that feels like, you know, vintage Paul Simon. She was beautiful as southern skies the night he met her. She was married to someone. He was doggedly determined that he would get her. He was old, he was young. Time to time, it tip his heart, but each time she withdrew. Everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. The demo has a much more sort of primary diatonic approach to the harmony, whereas the Hearts and Bones album version has a lot of these jazzy chords that, that feel slightly schmaltzy to me and 80s and uh, it seems as though, I mean, if I can say this about a hero, that he was sort of led astray with with this um, this arrangement. And, and so there is a sort of different burden than, you know, if you were to do some other known classic. There you have the burden of, well, why am I making a new arrangement of something that's perfect? Here, there is the sense of 
a missed opportunity or what had been a missed opportunity to try to refashion this song that really, really has good bones into something that lacks the kind of 80s ticks and indicators that made it perhaps a little bit of a misfire. Two disappointed believers, two people playing the game, yeah. And the sort of big decision to be made was whether or not Paul was going to play guitar. Uh, I felt that it might be interesting, given that the album version also doesn't have guitar, um, to do something that's just the sextet accompanying Paul's voice. So Gabe is thinking about how best to write for the ensemble and Paul's voice. And he keeps on coming back to this article he read a few years back in which Paul was talking about Bob Dylan. He said, you know, Dylan's singing voice is inherently laced with irony. And you say, what's mine? And somebody else says, well, what is? So anything that he sings is going to have a built-in subtext. And then Paul Simon says, and I don't have that kind of voice. My voice is inherently sincere. And it's forced me to approach being a lyricist in a different way. And I, I remember, I think I read that probably six or seven years ago, um, it having a, a really big impact on how I thought about um, writing lyrics as someone who also has a kind of inherently sweet, sincere voice. Um, it's not, uh, you know, dripping in in irony or, or in whiskey. Um, so I think that, what Paul Simon demonstrates is is that he's writing a kind of lyric that's incredibly specific to his his voice. What is the point of this story? What information pertains? The thought that life could be better is programmed in death. Into our hearts and our brains. I'm Gabriel Cabezas, and I play cello and wine music. I'm Alex Sop, and I play the flute with wine music. We're listening to Danny Brown right now. Very in-your-face rap going on in the background. It's just so loud and echoey, but so cool. It, I mean, it sounded great, but it was so loud. Our stage manager kind of came up to us offstage and was like, guys, it's going to rain. How much rain can you deal with? And I, you know, we all wanted to play so badly that we were like, if it's raining, we're gonna be fine. You know, it's, it won't, it won't blow on us. We'll just soldier through. Which is like the Meanwhile, most naive thing ever. We're yeah. at an outdoor music festival. Rain doesn't <laughs> yeah. just come down; it comes everywhere. It comes, yeah, it comes straight in. <laughs> I'm sitting under the tarp with Nadia, and there's a there's a Eau Claire sound guy to my left saying, "Oh, the, everything's gonna get canceled for the rest of the day. The festival's over. This is it." And I'm so devastated, honestly. So we're definitely a little bit nervous about what's going to happen. Right. I heard some murmur about a tornado. Which isn't a really good way to, to keep your head if you think that you're about to go on stage in a rainstorm. Although I have to say that if I was going to die anyway, I would be okay with it being sucked into the sky by a tornado while playing with Paul Simon. Yeah, it sounds about right. What a way to go. <laughs> We're hearing that it might clear up, and so 
everyone who works for the festival has just come on stage and started to squeegee everything and move the <laughs> monitors, which apparently are going to be fine. And at this point, <laughs> the entire crowd starts to lose it. Actually, Nadia and I, we have a little emotional moment where we tear up and hug each other because it's so, it's so moving to be on the other side of a crowd like that who is so hungry for an experience and to realize that you're in this position of being able to make that many people happy and feel something is huge. One minute it's pouring and then it changes to a drizzle and then the crew is kind of ushering us back on stage and I've managed to go through every possible emotion within, I don't know, 10 minutes. Yeah. So now getting to play feels unreal. So the, the show opens with America, and it starts with this kind of slow, thematic chorale with Y music. And then Paul comes in with the super iconic guitar opening. And the crowd goes insane. And I just started to weep on stage because, I mean, if you, had, if you had told any version of myself up until this moment that this was going to happen, that I was going to get to be a part of something like this, I would have told you you were nuts. It was very, very, very special. I would say in this show, I was, I was either beaming or weeping. And yeah. sometimes I was playing the flute. <laughs> Sounds about right. I mean, it's such an emotional show. The songs are iconic. The man is iconic. We, we've seen how he works, too, through this process and, and sort of getting the weight of the whole collaboration as you're showing people what you've done. Beyond the fact that we've all grown up with the songs, you kind of just can't believe that you're playing them with the guy who wrote them. I mean, it's, a, it's a big experience. And I think I'm going to be processing it for a really long time. I still haven't come down. I'm empty and I'm a king and I don't know why Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike and they all come to look for America All come to look for Some of my songs, some of my really old songs, seem to find a modern implication. The other day, just the other day, I was at a conference. It was uh, centered around this book called Half Earth. It's a plan for really saving the human race and the planet from what could be a, an extinction. I sang five songs, and uh, I ended it with The Sound of Silence. Hello, darkness, my old friend. And this photographer who works for National Geographic projected images of animals that were endangered. There's nothing that directly connects the storyline of The Sound of Silence to the subject of extinction. But everybody knew why we were there, and somehow the song seemed to bring a, an emotional aspect to it. So the song, which I'm just singing with my guitar, is completely different from the record that was a hit in 1966. There's a pleasure in that some of my older songs seem to resonate today in a way that has a nostalgic pleasure for those that were there, but also seems to have a value today.
I think that the more the arts are incorporated into the overall thinking about culture and civilization, the better chance we'll have of surviving in a time where literal survival is an issue. When you solve the problem only through the sciences, I think you're ignoring an essential part of human nature, which is the spiritual human part. The arts express that, that aspect of, of who we are as a species. I have uh, one more thought to give you before, uh, before we play our last song, and that is anger is addictive. The brain likes it. It likes those chemicals. And we are becoming a nation of addicts. And who, who are the dealers? Beware when you hear anger coming from any direction. Not that we have no reason to be angry. Of course, of course, we have many reasons to be angry, but the solution to problems come from a calm mind. That's the best way to do it. Remember, Practice kindness. you again because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound Silence. In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and the damp When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of silence and in the naked light I saw ten thousand people maybe more people talking
fool said I do not know Silence like a cancer grows Hear my words that I might teach you Take my arms and I might reach out to you But my words like silent raindrops fell People bowed and prayed to the neon god they made, and the sign flashed its warning, and the words that it was forming said the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls. Tenement halls whispered in the sound of silence. This episode of Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota, John Hanrahan, and me, Mead Bernard, with help from Hannes Brown and Alex Overington. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. The recordings of Paul Simon and Y Music at the Eau Claire Music Festival were recorded and mixed by Brian Joseph at Hive Studio, with assistant recording engineer Toby Spellman and assistant mix engineer Nick Larson. Thanks to our guests, Paul Simon, CJ Camereri, Gabriel Cahane, and Marcos Balter, and to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization, founded by composer John Duffy. Special thanks to our patron producer, David Weller. You can subscribe to Meet the Composer on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, heavens.